And if you will, just keep your place there in Jude chapter 1. My wife said, one verse? And I said, yep, today one verse. There's a whole lot in that one verse. Every word of the scripture is true. Every bit of it matters. Every bit of it is relevant. And I hope you see that today. Well, the title of the message that we're going to be looking at today in Jude 1.11 is simply entitled this, Deconstruct Your Relationship with the Lord. Deconstruct Your Relationship with the Lord. Now, you may hear that and say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? If you've been following our series in Jude, you know that the new term for walking away from your faith or redefining your faith is called deconstruction. Now, the word deconstruction did not start in religion, nor did it start in Christianity. It started in literature. And so there were professors who would say, we want you to take this piece of literature and analyze it or deconstruct it, critically evaluate it, and try to understand what it really means. Well, there was some newfangled pastor out there about 10 years ago who took that English literature word deconstruction, and he said, I'm going to do that with my faith. He started a blog. It became followed by millions, and the term became popular. So now you have people that are in denominations and churches all over, who are saying, I'm an ex-evangelical, not an evangelical, an ex-evangelical. I am deconstructing my faith. And what Jude gives us is a lot of relevance to this very issue. This is nothing new. People have been apostatizing. They've been deconstructing since the days of Jesus. It's nothing new. Now, deconstructionists, they do one of two things. They either walk away from the church or their faith, or they redefine their faith. They say, ah, you see, the Bible doesn't really mean what I always was taught that it meant. And uh, all the things the church taught me, that's not true. I'm redefining it all. I've come to see a deeper, fuller Jesus. But they're wrong. I mean, the truth is the truth. It's clear. It's black and white. It's right there in front of us. And so Jude is so relevant because of all the books in the New Testament. He tells us how to deal with those who deconstruct their faith. He tells us how to handle it. And so what a relevant message for us today, right? Well, today, the title again is called Deconstructing Your Relationship with God. Now, I don't want you to deconstruct your faith, obviously. I don't want you to walk away from the Lord. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm taking that word, I'm doing a word play, and I'm saying, here's what I want you to do. Critically evaluate. If the word deconstruction means critically evaluate, I want you to critically evaluate what motivates you, what is the foundation of your relationship with the Lord. Because I am convinced that people who walk away or redefine had a faulty relationship with Christ to begin with. That is the root, that is the issue. And not only did they have a faulty foundation, probably the motives of their heart coming to Jesus in the first place were wrong motives. So how do we know 
that we have the right motive, how do we know that we have the right foundation of our relationship with God? We look at what Jude says. We critically analyze our relationship with the Lord. Jude is going to give us three Old Testament examples. And in these three examples, what he's trying to get you to understand is he wants you to clarify and look clearly at your walk with God, your relationship with God. So we're going to look at those three Old Testament examples. And I want to just ask you this question. What is the foundation of your relationship with God built upon? Every one of us ought to ask that question. What is the foundation of my relationship with God built upon? And we're just going to go down through these three examples in verse 11. And we're going to use those examples like Jude does to say, okay, what's my motivation for being a Christian? What's my motivation for walking with God? Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it right or is it wrong? All right, let's jump into it, shall we? Number one, the first example that Jude gives us in verse 11 is he gives us the example of Cain. Cain. Now, we know that from Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's Two sons, not their only sons, but their first two, their famous two. And what he tells us is that the motivation that Cain had in his relationship was God, with God was completely wrong. Now, before I get into that, I want to just um, note uh, the, the two blanks there. Number one, our relationship with God, is it work or is it trust? Is it work or is it trust? Now, for Cain, what you're going to see is his relationship with God was based on work alone. It was not based on faith. It was not based on trust. It was based on work. There were two things that motivated Cain. Now, look at the verse. It says, for they walked in the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? It is a pattern. It is a way of life. It is what motivates people in their relationship with God. These people who are deconstructing their faith, who are redefining it and walking away from it, their problem is that they are walking in the way of Cain. They have this pattern in their life. They have this motivation that's driving them. Well, what was the way of Cain? What was the way of Cain? Well, you have to go back to the book of Genesis to understand the way of Cain. But there were two things that, that I think characterized the way of Cain. Number one, Cain wanted to make his own way. He wanted to make his own way. Now, you remember in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, that the Bible tells us that there came a time when both Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices before the Lord. Now, you may remember this story from Sunday school. One of them, Abel, brought a blood sacrifice from his animals that he worked and that he tended. The other, Cain, brought vegetables, produce, because he was a farmer and worked with his hands, and brought that before the Lord. Now, both of them brought something. But what's ironic in the story is God accepts what Abel brings, the bloody sacrifice, and he rejects what Cain brings, which is the beautiful fruit from the ground, the first of his produce. 
Now you might say, well, why did God reject Abel's sacrifice? I'm sorry, accept Abel's sacrifice, but reject Cain's. Well, very simply put, in Genesis chapter 3, when you go back just a little bit, verse 21, Adam and Eve had sinned. The Lord God did what for them the minute they sinned? He sacrificed an animal, blood was shed, and he covered them with the skin of the animal. That's what happened at the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell in sin. God sacrificed an animal and covered them with an animal skin. Now, what is happening there, what is implied in Genesis 3.21, is that blood was shed when Adam and Eve sinned. Now, don't you think that Adam and Eve, who had been taught that lesson by God when they sinned, that an animal had to be sacrificed and the, the skin of that animal had to cover them, don't you think that they also taught that to their children? Don't you think they taught that to Cain and Abel, that when you come before the Lord, you have to bring a blood sacrifice? Why do you have to do that? Because, I mean, first of all, you've got to see that sin is costly. Sin brings death. And so, to know that sin brings death, something has to die. But secondly, you have to be covered once your, your sin has been exposed. You have to be covered. You have to be atoned for. And so that animal dying teaches death and it teaches atonement. Well, that's what Adam and Eve learned there in chapter 3, and that's no doubt what they taught their children. And Scripture says in chapter 4, verse 3, that at the appointed time, what does that teach us? That God had appointed a day when Cain and Abel would bring their sacrifices before him. You see, all of that points to one fact these boys had been clearly taught how to come before the Lord and when to come before the Lord and what to bring before the Lord. So when Abel shows up rightly doing what he has been taught, coming at the right time and in the right way with the blood of an animal, God accepts it. When Cain comes, not with the blood of the animal, at the right time, but not in the right way, God says to him, this is not what I taught you. I don't want your beautiful gift of produce. Not yet. You've got to come to me the way I taught you. There's got to be shedding of blood. There's got to be remission of sins. If you are going to come to me to be saved, this is how you come. But what we see in the way of Cain, what Jude is referring to here, first of all, Cain made his own way. He made his own way. He was not interested in the way of God. He was not interested in the way of salvation. He rejected the clear teaching God had given him, God had given his parents, God had laid down, and he brought his produce before the Lord. Well, in doing that, what was he doing? He was rejecting salvation. He was saying, my work, my effort, my way is good enough for me. Everybody who walks in the way of Cain, they come the same way. They don't want to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't want to come through the sacrifice of the real Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They want to come with their works. 
They want to come with what they have done with their hands. They want to come before God and say, Here, look how good I am. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at how diligent I have been. Look at what my hands have produced. You say, Pastor, who wants to do that? Everybody I've ever shared the gospel with who's lost as a ball in high weeds and does not know Jesus gives me this answer. I mean, you try it. Share the gospel. Share the gospel with somebody. And when you say to them, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask, why should I let you in heaven? What would your answer be? And I guarantee you they'll say something just like this. Well, I've tried to be a good person. Oh, see, that's the way of Cain. And they'll say, well, I've, I've tried to live my life in the best way possible. That's the way of Cain. They'll say, well, I've, I've tried to be a good parent. I've tried to be a good American. I've tried to be all these things. You know, I've, I've tried to live right and pay my taxes. That's the way of Cain. If that's your basis for getting into heaven is your goodness, you're walking in the way of Cain. Cain wanted to make his own way. And that's why God rejected his sacrifice. But let me tell you one more thing about Cain. The way of Cain. Cain not only wanted to make his own way, Cain was mastered by sin. You remember in Genesis 4, after those boys came and brought their sacrifice to God, God came to Cain in pity and passion and said to him in verse 7 of chapter 4, Why are, why are you so downcast, Cain? Now I'm paraphrasing this, but why are you so downcast? And remember that God said to him, if you do what's right, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have mastery over you, Cain. You have a choice. You have a decision. You have something you have to do right now. See, Cain's way is, I want to make my own way to God. I want to do what I want to do. And I also am going to be mastered by sin. Every one of us has a choice. Are we going to listen to God or are we going to let sin master us? And in that moment, Cain chose to be mastered by sin. Scripture tells us that he lured his brother Abel into an open field where no one was around except God who sees everything. God is everywhere. He sees everything. He knows what's going on in our heart. And while Cain lured his brother out into a field, God saw him strike that boy and shed his blood. That's the way of Cain. Mastered by sin, making your own way. And this is what Jude tells us. These people who are deceived, who are deconstructing, who are in danger, are in danger of. The motivation of their relationship with God is not faith, it is not trust, it is works. So let me ask you this question. What is your motivation in coming to God? Are you walking in the way of Cain? Are you saying, Lord, I'm going to come to you, but I'm going to come my way? Are you saying, yeah, sin is not a big deal. I'm mastered by it. I will do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I do not want any God telling me what to do with my life. That's the way of Cain. If that's you, whatever relationship you think you have with God, it's wrongly motivated. It's not right. 
You talk to everybody today in the street. You go, to, you, you go anywhere. You go talk to the thief, the robber, the prostitute, the gang member, the whatever. The worst person in the world. Everybody thinks they have a relationship with God. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Let me tell you something. If you're walking in the way of Cain, you got the wrong motivation. you got the wrong relationship with God. There's a right way. What is it? Faith. Trust. All right, let's look at number two. Not only is there work or trust, the second example that he gives us in the Old Testament is a man named Balaam. Now, Jude would have known that his, his readers would have understood these Old Testament stories. We should understand these Old Testament stories, but if we don't, it's a great refresher course. The way of Balaam. What is the way of Balaam? Well, number two, is it physical or is it spiritual? Now, we're talking about what is your relationship with God built upon? What is the foundation? What motivates you coming to Christ? What is that underlying principle of your relationship with God? And if it's not built on the right, right things, then something's wrong. And you're going to be deceived. It could lead to not only deception, but disaster in your life. Well, the second thing, is it physical or is it spiritual? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Now notice, the next thing we read is about this man named Balaam. And abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Well, what does that mean? Abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Numbers chapter 22. We come in contact with a man who is a Gentile, not a Jew. And he's hired by a man named Balak, who is the king of Moab. The king of Moab hates the Israelites. He doesn't want them anywhere near him. He's fearful of them. He's fearful of what they might do to his kingdom. And so this king Balak of Moab hires this prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. This prophet Balaam was known for having some kind of power, prophetic power, to bless, to curse. Things seemed to happen when this man spoke. And so... He's hired by this king, this national king, and he says, go and curse the Israelites for me. Well, three times Balaam tries to curse the Israelites. Three times. And every time he tries to speak a curse against the people of God, out of his mouth comes a blessing, and he can't curse them through his mouth. He cannot even utter a curse against God's people. But what's motivating Balaam is this king is offered a huge sum of money to curse the Israelites. What motivates Balaam is greed. He loves gold and silver. He knows he's going to get a huge paycheck if he can just curse God's people. But he can't do it. Every time he speaks, blessing comes out instead of cursing. So Balaam sits down and thinks really, really hard. And comes up with another way that he can deceive the Israelites, get his payment, and walk off a rich man. The scriptures later tell us in Numbers 31 that Balaam says, Okay, I physically cannot do anything against these Israelites. I can't curse them. I can't stop them. There's nothing I can do, but I can do this. 
I can tell you a weakness that they have and a way that you, the Moabites, could exploit the chink in their armor and bring them down. Now, if I do that, will you pay me for that? Oh, yes, Balak would say. Yes, I would pay you if you would tell me the chink in their armor. And so Balaam says, here's what you do. <laughs> you use promiscuity, immorality. It's the oldest trick in the book. Use a little bit of immorality. Get these beautiful Moabite women who do not follow the God of Israel. They do not follow his commandments. Get them and let them move around with these Israelite men. Seduce these Israelite men. Drive these Israelite men away from their God and introduce incestuous relationships, idolatry, wickedness, promiscuity, you name it introduce it into Israel's life. Why don't you go in that way since we can't go in the front door? And that's exactly what they do. And when you get to Numbers 31, you don't read this in 22, but you read it in 31. Balaam is named as the reason the Israelites failed immorally with Moabite women. He is the culprit. He is the one that made that happen. Now, what's the point? The point is Balaam was a man that lived to make money. And he had no morals. He had no principles. It did not matter. It was all about gold and silver. Now, how does that relate to us on this side of the cross where we say, okay, my motivation for coming to God, we can be just like Balaam. Our motivation can be driven by this. What do I get out of my relationship with God? What can I get out of it? And the minute that we say we can't get anything else out of it, we're gone. Now, for the true believer, our motive is not, what do I get out of this? Our motive, because we have been saved by Jesus Christ, we are under the law of Christ, our motive should be, what can I give? What can I give? You see, because Christ died for me and I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God, everything in my life has changed. Did you know that there were 613 laws in the Old Testament and God gave those laws through Moses to the Israelites for one reason, to tutor the Israelites? Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, to tutor them, to train them. They were children. They were in elementary school. That's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3. And God sent that tutor to teach them. And God sent all these laws that seem so irrelevant and copious to us. But it's just like when you're a kid, you know, you have all these rules. And then the older you get, you get more and more freedom. Well, the Old Testament, the law given to Moses, was meant to teach these children of Israel. It was restrictive to them for a purpose to lead them and teach them one thing. You can't be righteous on your own. Nobody believes that. They had to learn that. You cannot be righteous on your own. And so all the work that they would put into that law, they failed. They failed. Every king failed. Every prophet failed. Every priest failed. And it prepared them for the coming one that would bring maturity, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, who was Jesus Christ. 
And Christ alone kept the law for us that we could not keep for ourselves. Christ alone fulfilled all the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. And now we're told in the New Covenant that every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that for us there is only one law? There's only one law for the Christian. It's the law of love. That's it. You want to know what it all boils down to? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian is motivated by love. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to give you a fuller meaning. Listen, the Christian, believe it or not, is driven by a deeper law than the law of Moses. And we fulfill it in a deeper way. We go beyond it. We go beyond it. You want to know why he told the Israelites don't commit adultery? Because the nation would implode if he hadn't given them that law to constrain them. That's why he told them don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't steal. Don't murder. Why? Because I'm trying to raise you up to be a nation so the Messiah can come so that the gospel will be prevalent to all the world. But if I don't give you these laws, you all are going to kill yourself out here. Your children, and you're going to kill yourself out here. So I've got to give you all these rules, copious rules, so that you'll do them. Well, then Jesus comes, and he takes that law, and he even goes beyond it. He says, yeah, no longer is it just that you don't commit adultery outside of your body. You don't even commit it in your heart. Why? Because something lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit compels us to love. It compels us to love. Why do I not cheat in my business? Because I love God and I love His people that He created. Love drives me not to cheat in my business. Why would I not take my neighbor's wife? Because love drives me to serve my neighbor. God has saved me. The Spirit is in me. Listen, when you have love, you don't need laws. When you love people, you don't need laws. Laws are created because no one loves. Here we have the law of Christ, love. Now let's go back to Balaam. Let's go back to him. What was his sole motivation for coming to God? What can I get out of this? And that's some of you. Some of you have come to Christ because of what God can give you. God, make my way straight. Give me no problems in my life. Make everything easy for me. And the minute you don't live up to your end of the bargain of giving me the front parking space at Walmart, I'm out of here. And we've told a lot of our young kids this is what the gospel is. What you can get out of it. Friends, a Christian has one law, love. Love motivates everything we do. It's not what I can get out of it. It's what can I give? What can I give? How can I love the love of Christ to those around me? And there's many people in the church today that are selfish people living in Balaam's error. They're doing the very same thing. I'm here for what I can get, not what I can give. Is that what your relationship with God is built upon? If that's the motivation of your relationship, it will not last. It will not hold up. Let me go to the third thing. The third thing is Korah's rebellion, which is this, rebellion or obedience. So again, we're saying, what is the foundation of my relationship with God? 
What motivates me in my relationship with God? Am I motivated by work that I do and I produce? Or am I motivated by trust and faith? We say, am I motivated by the physical? What can I get out of it? Or am I motivated by the spiritual? What can I give? Christ has so changed my heart. The one law, the love of Christ impels me, compels me, not impels me, compels me. We don't want to be impaled, all right? That would be bad. Christ was impaled on a stick. What compels me? The love of Christ, the law of Christ. The very last thing is this. Is my relationship with God built on rebellion or obedience? Rebellion or obedience. Now we see the very last Old Testament example here in verse 11. And perished in Korah's rebellion. Now again, Jude uses just three quick Old Testament illustrations to say what motivates your relationship with God. Are you in the way of Cain? Are you selfish like Balaam? Or are you rebellious like Korah? Now who was Korah? Korah is mentioned in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a Levite priest, a cousin of Moses. And here the Israelites are in the wilderness, and God has given Moses all of these commands and instructions for worship. Moses is the mediator between the Israelites and God. Remember Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he receives from God the instructions. The Israelites didn't go as a nation. They sent him because they said, we're terrified. We don't want to be in this holy mountain. We don't want to be in this massive, awesome presence. And so, Moses is their mediator. Moses is also someone who talks to God on their behalf. That priestly service. He's a priest to these people. Well, so is Korah. He's a Levite. He's a priest. He works at the tabernacle. And one day, again, summarizing the story, one day Korah is fed up with the mediatorial role of Moses and the leadership of Moses. Moses was a man like you and me. He had his failures as a leader like you and me. He didn't do everything right like you and me. And what was motivating Korah was not love. You see, the Bible tells us if we're living that one law, love, love covers a whole lot of things. Love overlooks things. Love puts up with a lot of things. It always trusts. It always hopes. It never fails. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love is very, very powerful. When we have the love of Christ, we overlook a lot of things. We do a lot of things. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Scripture tells us. But that's not where Korah was. Korah had no love for God. Korah had no love for Moses as the leader. Korah said, we need a new leader. We don't like you. We think we could do better. We think that you're not doing good enough. But more importantly, Korah said, and we don't need a mediator. If you look in Numbers 16, one of the things Korah says that's so striking is we're all God's people. We're all God's people. We're all under the cloud. We're all spiritual. We don't need you to mediate for us. 
Now the irony is, Korah is not going against Moses, he's going against God. He's going against God. He doesn't have a love for God. He doesn't have a love for any mediatorial role. He doesn't see the need for it. And so his relationship with God is rebellion, not obedience. And he entices three other priests and 250 people in Israel to follow him. That's a lot of people. You talk about a church split. They weren't the church, but they had a split. They had a desert split, a tabernacle split. Over 250 people decide to walk out and walk away. Love is not driving them. Obedience to God's command is not driving them. What's driving them? Rebellion, selfishness. And what happens? God says, no, you're my people. You agreed at Sinai to obey the law. There's blessings if you obey. There's curses if you don't obey. And so right at that moment, the ground opens up. And Korah and those in the rebellion are swallowed up in the ground. Boy, I've always been careful, right? Lord, just swallow me up. I deserve to be swallowed up. I'm surprised I haven't been swallowed up yet. And the truth is, you probably deserve to be swallowed up too. But the grace of God doesn't swallow us up. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? But it swallowed them up. And Jude uses that last example again to say, what motivates your relationship with God? Listen, those who deconstruct, those who walk away or redefine, it's not because they had a living, vital relationship with God to begin with in the first place. It's because one of these things or all of these things were real in their life and motivated them to come to church. Not come to God, come to church. Motivated them to use religion. Motivated them to be a part of the evangelical community. What was the motivation? It was a place where they could show off their works and not their faith. They made their own way. They were mastered by sin. Or it's a place where they could say, what can I get out of this? What is God and what is the church going to do for me? Not where I can serve, not where I can love, not where I can give. What can I get out of this? Or it was a place where they said, you know what? I really don't want to be obedient to God. I've been sitting under these sermons, I've been listening to these preachers, and I've decided that my way is better than God's way, and I do not want any God telling me how to live my life. I don't want any God telling me who to love. I don't want any God telling me any expectations upon me. And so there comes a point in their life, this is a progression, where they finally say, I'm done with that leadership and that mediator named Jesus. So what's the only option for those people? They've got to redefine. They've got to say, you know what? I'm a Christian, quote unquote, but I don't believe the Bible that you preach, or I don't believe it the way you see it, or I don't think that's who Jesus really was. They redefine or they walk away altogether. Is that happening today? You better believe it. Denominations are doing this, not just people. Now I want you to go back to the very top of this one verse we've looked at today. 
the three examples, and I want you to notice how the verse starts, and this is where I want to end. The verse starts with what? Starts with the word, woe to them. Woe to them. Don't bypass that phrase. That is said a lot in the New Testament. Jesus said it. Others say it. Jude says it. Woe. When you see the word woe, it means please stop. Please listen. What you should see in the word woe is the grace, love, mercy of God. God does not want these people to be deceived. And I say that because I know some of you have told me I have children who are in this deception right now and I don't know what motivated them when they were young to come to faith but I'm telling you where they are right now, they've walked away. And I want you to know that God loves your wayward children more than you do. Because right here he says, whoa, whoa, I'm writing this I'm warning you, I'm telling you, because I love you. God loves us. And He never leaves us without clear warning. And for some of you today, where you have these children who have walked away from the faith, you need to cry out. I mean, in a moment, I'm going to call you to come down at this altar, and I want you to pray for those wayward children. I know you do, but why can't we pray with you and say, yes, yes, we know that they're walking in these ways, and we just want to pray that they would say, woe, in their heart, and listen to God. You know, woe. I remember one time... I was at a youth event a long time ago, young man. It was late at night. We had spent all night doing crazy stuff as teenagers and as their youth pastor, I was. And I was exhausted, and there were some kids hanging around at this particular house where we had had the event, and they were going to stay the night. And so I get in my car, and I'm pulling out of the driveway, and I see about five of these kids jumping up and down and screaming and hollering, acting like chickens. And I thought, what in the world are they doing? And it's about one in the morning, and I'm tired, and I'm ready to go home. And I just thought, they're just being stupid kids, right? They're just being goofy as I pull out. Well, they got louder, and they just kept jumping up and down. Oh, oh, and I thought, what are they doing? And they were waving at me, and I just was waving back. And right about that time, I felt it. Hmm. My car rammed into a vehicle that was painted black that I could not see in the dark of night that was blocking the driveway. What were they doing to me? They weren't being silly. They were trying to tell me, stop whoa, you're about to hit this car. When I got out, I, I do what we all did. Why didn't anybody warn me? And they said, what do you think we were doing? I said, I don't know. I just thought you were being stupid. You should have thrown yourself on my car. Better yet, thrown yourself behind my car to stop this. They tried and they tried and they tried to warn me. And, and I didn't understand that. And I just backed up and ignored that. But I want to tell you, I think God's word is clearer than that. And I think God is saying to us, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that ought to break some of our hearts to say, Father, I'm going to pray for these people I love more diligently than I've been praying. And I'm going to enlist God's people with me to pray for them. For some of you, maybe it's not your loved ones. Maybe it's people you share the gospel with. 
or people who used to be with you in the pew and they're not here any longer. And you ought to say, God, please let that woe reach their heart. Holy Spirit, take the woe and reach their heart. Can we bow our heads now as our musicians make their way? And I just want to ask you to take a moment to have the freedom in Christ to come and pray for people who are ignoring the woe, who are ignoring the woe. Can I just call you if you feel so in inclined to get up and, and come to this altar? Maybe grab somebody with you and say, would you just come and pray with me? Because I want to pray for this person who's not heeding the woe. We've all got those people in our life. And they're either going the way of Cain or they're going the way of Balaam or they're motivated by Korah's rebellion. But one of those things motivates their heart. And we just want to pray that what motivates their heart is the woe of Christ. The woe of Christ. So as these people come and Brandon plays, you just pray where you are. Say, Lord, help me to always respond to your gospel. Help me to be faithful to preach your gospel and share it with other people and to honor you in every way.